before we jump into the sermon proper, I want to give you an update on something that many of y'all did. A couple weeks ago, I asked you to help me with a project I'm working with several pastors in a few regions of the, uh, the country, uh, working on project of how to grow deeper into the likeness of Jesus. And I asked you to, to fill out a survey on why you go to church. That's just said, why do you go to church? So 57 of y'all filled out that survey. So it was a great response. And I loved what it told us about why at least you, you 57 that filled it out. I imagine this is not just, this applies to lots of us. So what I did is I took all those responses and I put them into a program, a word cloud program. So it will highlight the words that really stood out in the responses. So in a world where you can go to church online, why would you ever come to this building? Well, here's the responses in an image. Isn't that cool? So why go to church? You can see some of the words that begin to stand out that you gave. God, together, family, people, love, faith, worship. There's encouragement there. So when I looked at that and you see that image and it just pops, it just tells me that the reason you come to a building is because you can't do relationships through a screen forever. You need your body to be in relationship. And that's why you come to a church building. And I am so glad to see so many of you. And I know that there are others that are still taking a little bit more time before they return. But why do you come to church? Well, what you said was because you can't do relationship through a screen. You need people because you live your life in a physical body. Isn't that good? I just I so appreciate what you did here. This is going to go out to help not just us here at East 10th. It's going to go out to help some of the other pastors who I'm working with. But I just wanted you to see that. So I am so glad to see you here today. I'm so glad and anticipating more returning. But the idea you can do church in your pajamas is just an illusion. We need each other. And you knew that. And when you were given the opportunity to say so anonymously, you did. All right. So I just wanted to give you that update. So good. All right, let's go back. Let's go to the next slide, just the cover slide. And now we'll start the sermon proper. Because I've been thinking a lot this week about life-changing events. Life-changing events. You remember the moment you got keys to the car? Remember the first time you drove without your parents? I'm hoping all of you have experienced that, those that can. Like toes, you experienced that. Yeah, you did. All right. Billy over here, I know you experienced that. Life-changing event. Some of you took advantage of it, but more than others. I remember, I remember one time, my parents have never heard this story. Good thing they're not in the room. Good thing they're not in the room. Good thing they're not sitting third row back. I'll never forget, I wanted to see how long it took me to get from my house to Kroger, where I was a bag boy. I did it in three minutes. Yeah, I know. Really bad. Like, I mean, no, it was really good time. It's really bad that I did it. Um, But I'll never forget, it was like a life-changing event to have keys to my car. Now, if my kids would ever try to do that, they will lose their life. Like, that would be the life-changing event. Um, But I just never forget that life-changing event, getting your car keys to the car. Or maybe, like, when you got accepted to college. That that could be a life-changing event. Or when you said, I do. Life-changing events. Or the first moment your little one voluntarily uses the bathroom on their own life-changing events. 
didn't think I was going to make it through Ryland potty training. No kidding. I remember sitting in a Walmart parking lot at my wit's end, and I called the pediatrician. And I said, please, what do we need to do? I don't know what to do. They said, well, try M&M's. You know that didn't work. He manipulated the system. But that moment, he did it on his own. Oh, life-changing event. And we only have one more of those to go. One more life-changing event to go uh, on that. Life-changing events. You know why I'm thinking about life-changing events? Because we're like right here on Easter Sunday. And if there was ever a life-changing event, it was on Easter Sunday. It was the day that Jesus came back to life. That was a life-changing event. And what we see in today's passages, this wasn't just a life-changing event for the world. It was a life-changing event for people with names, particularly one man named Cornelius. And so we're going to pick up in this sermon being preached to Cornelius, Peter, giving this message, this Christian message, this good news to a non-Jew, the first time that had ever happened. And so we're going to pick up with the last half of this sermon from Peter to Cornelius. And we're going to see that it has a lot to say to us in our day. So we pick up there. Acts chapter 10. We pick up in the second half of verse 39. And there we read these words going to the end of the sermon. They killed him. Him being Jesus. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day, caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Because that's the message. That's the message. If only all sermons were that short, right? There it is. That's the rest of his sermon there. And here, with so much sitting there, I think it's important for us to take a journey through three moves. There's three moves in the last half of the sermon. And so I just want to take a journey through those three moves. And the first one, the first move I see, is all about resurrection. All about resurrection. What's interesting in this sermon... Peter gives is that he actually de-emphasizes the crucifixion and he highlights the resurrection. He's going to say more about the resurrection in this sermon than any of his others. Now he has this one thing he says in every sermon about the resurrection. It's really important. In Acts 2, 3, and here he says that we were witnesses to the resurrection. So here this Jesus comes back to life. He's breathing in a body and we were witnesses. We saw it. Now he says that in Acts 2, and here in Acts 10. But here in this sermon, he takes one step further. Take a look, just as a reminder, verse 41, he says, He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses God chose. This begins a journey in the early church where they begin to describe these uh, these uh, revelations, these visions of the risen Jesus, these appearances. We're going to see more and more that these are real people with real names. And as the gospel goes out, they're going to start naming names. They're going to start to fill out the details of exactly who saw Jesus. That becomes very important here for Peter. This is an element that he has not yet given in any of his other sermons. Now, after a few decades, the Apostle Paul will pen a summary of the gospel. 
It is what scholars think as the early creed of the church. It's the thing that gets passed down over and over and over again as the good news goes out. And I'm going to read it. It's going to come from 1 Corinthians chapter, I forgot, 15. How did I forget? I was going to go 11, but I had been wrong. So I'd rather admit that I forgot. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 8, half of it, over half of it, has everything to do with the witnesses. Take a look at what Paul writes here. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of them whom are still living, through though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Over half of that passage is all about the people that he appeared to. I mean, this wouldn't be this wouldn't be a flippant list. If I get up tomorrow and I declare that Ronald Reagan has risen from the dead and he is now our current president of the United States, you may think a lot of things about me, but you probably won't think I'm a threat to society. You may call me crazy, but you probably won't put me in prison. But in the early church, when these early Christians go around declaring that a man has come back from the dead and he is the true king. It was a direct claim in opposition to the claim of Caesar of Rome. They are claiming now a new king. So for me to declare Ronald Reagan alive is no threat to anybody. I had nothing to lose, only but my reputation. The early Christians had everything to lose. So when these names start getting put down publicly, they had everything to lose. Most of the early apostles lost their life because of their faith. They were killed because they believed Jesus had come back from the dead. It'd be odd for one person to die for a lie. For a whole group of people to die for a lie? Well, that would be crazy. For 500 people to lose their life to a lie? That would just, that, would, that wouldn't be, we wouldn't think that normal. The fact that these people are declaring publicly and their names written down specifically that Jesus came back to life is evidence that Jesus actually came back to life. And they were willing to put their reputation, their life, on the line to declare it. And then you have these 500 people. Well, what if it was a hallucination? Most people don't have the same hallucination. They usually have different ones. If you start tripping out on something, you're probably going to see something different than your friend who's on the same thing. People don't have similar hallucinations. And yet here, a group of people, those that would have known each other, are claiming to have seen the same thing. This is evidence that he actually rose from the dead. They are claiming it. They're putting their name on the line. Well, it's not just that they saw Jesus come back to life. It's a little bit more. You see, there's another part of verse 41 that becomes very important for us. It's going to have a lot to say to your life today. Verse 41, the next part of verse 41 is this. They ate, these witnesses ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. This is a very important point Peter wants to make. That these people who saw Jesus saw a real person with real flesh. And they, he appeared as a real person to real people. So much so that they shared a meal together. Now in the gospel accounts, there are a few accounts of Jesus having a meal with his disciples post-resurrection. 
I imagine the one that Jesus is, uh, Peter is thinking here is that moment Jesus had breakfast with his disciples. That moment he appears to them in the room. It's that famous passage, John 20. Take a journey through that passage with me. I want us to see something very important for us. Here it is. This is how John records it. Verse, uh, John 20, verse 24 through 28. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger in the nails, uh, where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then, soon after that, they shared this meal at the seaside, and they ate fish together. One of the most striking things about this account is that Jesus still has scars. Jesus still has scars. You know, we talk about the afterlife as a place where there's no more pain, no more suffering. Almost like there's no more memory. No, no. You see, when Jesus comes back in a real body, a resurrected body, radiating, pulsing with glory and power, you know what still exists on that real body? Scars. That tells me this. I want to just make sure we're clear on this point. Jesus' resurrection did not eliminate the history or the memory of the cross, but transformed it into a sign of love and glory. In short, the resurrection did not erase the past, but redeemed it. Your past does not go away. It gets remade. And the fact that He carried scars tells us that the resurrection doesn't remove your past suffering, it remakes it. But the scars are still there in the resurrected Jesus. And they're still, Thomas still touches them. He touches his feet. It's really important for us. Just log that away. Just keep that logged away. But what would any of this have to do with a Roman centurion, this Cornelius? So a Jewish teacher dies and he comes back to life and he has breakfast with his disciples. What does that have to do with a man of power, like a centurion soldier, a man like Cornelius? What in the world does that have to do with him? Well, that next move is what has to do with Cornelius. It's the next move. It's this move. That not only did Jesus appear to many witnesses, even ate with them, he is going to be judge of the living and the dead. Sounds very odd to Cornelius, I'm sure. Remember, this is a Roman centurion. A man with power. You mess with this man, this man puts you on a cross. That's what power means to a Roman. A power power to a Roman means you mess with me, I mess with you, I win. That's what power means in the Roman world. It means you have more strength, more military backing behind you than you have. That's what it means in the Roman world. It means you hold sway. You hold it on the legal front, the economic front, the military front. You win. And to hear that a man crucified would be judge of the living and the dead would make no sense to this man. But see, in Christianity, everything gets turned upside down. It is actually the meekness, the gentleness of Jesus that is actually His power. It is not that He takes everyone's life. 
It is that He gives His life for everyone else. That is true power. And so when John the Apostle, at the end of the Bible, has this vision, has this vision of power and glory and strength, he doesn't see a lineup of bazookas. He doesn't even see a roaring lion. He sees a lamb slaughtered in power and glory. This makes no sense. But it's actually the song sung in the heavens over and over and over again. You might think that gets boring to sing the same song over and over again. That's because we've grown old in our sin. Go watch a toddler want to do the same thing over and over and over and over. Why? Because they never get tired of joy. Ah, sin removes that part of us. For a child, you can do the same thing for the rest of your life and find the same amount of joy. It's why we'll be singing the same song over and over. There's just be great joy like a child doing something fun. And here's the scene. I want to read it at length. I don't want you to miss it. Here's the scene. When you think judge, you carry this image. Here it is. Revelation 5, 1 through 12. We're taking an excerpt here. John says this, I saw in the right, on the, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy? I wish we would have sang a song about this. That would have been great if we would have sang a song about this. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. It's standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you are slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They were saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Those are words you reserve with, for people that carry lots of strength, that can destroy nations. But in the order of the kingdom of God, those terms get associated with the one who gave his life. It is He who is strong. He is the one who is judge. And just in case you would miss all of this in this vision, there's this moment that Paul just writes it about as clear as you can get. Here it is. This one's a little scarier. Here it is. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while here in the body, whether good or bad. So those things that we do when no one else has seen them, the thoughts running through our head that no one gets to hear, all of it will be made, given an account for it. You have to give an account for all of it. You don't get away with secret stuff. The kingdom of God is not a place of secrecy. It's a place of, of revealing. It's a place where everything is transparent. You and I will stand in front of Jesus. That lamb slain, the one full of glory and power and honor, the one worthy, we will stand in front of Him. 
You and I can talk about freedom all day long as if it's, we get to do whatever we want. There is a day where that will end. There is a day where that will end. You know that's true anyway. There's things I can do at 38 that I won't be able to do at 68. Time will deal with my freedom. And Jesus will deal with all of you one day. Now that can be a bit scary if you don't know him. But if you do, it is all, all is well. You see, the thing about being judged when you're this kind of judge is that you are not, this is not a judge who is mean or unfair or capricious, someone who is arbitrary in their judgments. It's in that third move now in this, in this sermon that Peter gives where he explains the kind of judge Jesus is. He's the judge that will accept everybody that comes to him. Did you see it in verse 43, that third move? Here it is, just so we're clear. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. Everyone. You, you don't miss out. Does it matter the color of your skin? Does it matter your health? It doesn't matter your, your, your income? It doesn't matter what language you speak or what country you came from, what deformity you were born with or how great an athlete you are. Everyone comes and is welcome at the table of the Lamb. Everyone in his name. Now, why would it be his name? Doesn't this seem a bit exclusive, right? I mean, why not Muhammad? Why not in the, in the way of Hinduism? Why not some other way? Why not in your way? Why not in the liberal way? Why not in a conservative way? Why not in another way? Because conservatives didn't die and come back to life. Buddha did not die and come back to life. Muhammad has a grave. Jesus is the only one who died and came back to life. And is now reigning. So if you want life, if you want peace, you've got to go to the one who has it. What beggar goes to another beggar and asks for food? The beggar goes to the one with bread. And so everything is in his name. And who? Everyone. Remember last week we talked about how inclusive Christianity is? How it is the most diverse religion in the world? I just want to make sure we get that. Here's what... Uh, Paul says, Colossians 3:11. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. The Christ is in all, uh, is all, and is in all. And so here, Cornelius, this man who had been barred from the promises of God, at this moment through Jesus, the Judge of the living and the dead, the one who came back to life and appeared to witnesses and ate with them. He is the one offering life now to this non-Jew, this man who probably carried lots of sins in his past. Now, he's invited to come. And with that, open the way for every non-Jew. I'm assuming, looking at you, all of you are included. We all now get to be part of the promises. What a day. What a moment where everything changed. So what did Cornelius do with all that? Well, here it is. Acts 10, 46, last half of 46 through 48. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered that they be baptized in the name of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. What did they do? They believed and they were baptized. That's what they did. And in that, the gospel opens into the world. That's really good news. I'm so glad this passage landed on Easter Sunday. All about the resurrection. These three moves. A resurrected Jesus who appears to witnesses. The judge of the living and the dead. 
and the one who accepts everyone in his name. So there's two applications I got out of this. Like two things that, that really hit home. One's pretty quick because I figure you're, you, you're going to bank on me saying something about this. Here's the first one. Come to Jesus if you're still far off. I feel like that's the easy one. If you don't know Jesus, come to Jesus. He's not only the one who has life, He's the one that will be your judge. And if you do not know Him, you will not know Him. He will give you what you want in the end. C.S. Lewis has this famous way of saying the way heaven and hell will work. One day in heaven, heaven will be full of, full of people to whom God said, uh, to whom they said to God, I'm sorry, to whom they said to God, your will be done. You see, everyone in heaven wants to be there. But hell will be full of people to whom God said, your will be done. If you want life to be your way, God will let you have it one day. And that will eventually be hell. Don't think fire and pitchforks. Think despair and depression and loneliness. The disintegration of who you are. The, the worst parts of this life will be the best parts in hell. So there it is. So if you're far from Jesus, come. Be baptized if that's where you need to be. Repent if that's where you need to be. Alright, enough said on that point. You know where you are if you need that one. So what about this second one? This is the one that has hit me all week. This is the one I have just been dwelling on. Here it is. The resurrection gives us real hope in a world full of suffering. Now that just seems to be Christianese, doesn't it? seems to be like what you might expect. Let me share a story from a Pastor uh, Timothy Keller. Tim Keller was a pastor in New York for many years, and he wrote in his book, The Reason for God, he told a story that ties in to something I want to say this morning related to Easter and the resurrected Jesus. Here's the story he tells. A few years ago, I had a horrible nightmare in which I dreamed that everyone in my family had died. And when I awoke, my relief was enormous. But there was much more than just relief. My delight in each member of my family was tremendously enriched. I looked at each one and I realized how grateful I was for them. How deeply I loved them. Why? My joy had been greatly magnified by the nightmare. My delight upon awakening took the terror up into itself, as it were, so that in the end my love for them was only greater for having lost them and found them again. You know, the same dynamic is at work when you lose some possession you take for granted. When you find it again, having thought it was gone forever, you cherish and appreciate it in a far deeper way. Last week you might have seen a text message come through on your phone if you're part of our text messaging service. Someone in the church lost their keys. Someone who had control of the text messaging service and could send a message out about losing their keys. Yeah, and we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we looked. And then when I went to close my office door, FD, standing right next to me, said, What are those? And in the doorknob, lay my keys. And I have never loved my keys more. I thought about that. When you lose something, how much joy comes. I think that has something to say to us on this Easter Sunday. Let me share with you something that Keller writes right after this story. Here's what he says. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. 
And C.S. Lewis, I think, gets it here. He takes that idea, C.S. Lewis, and he just words it just a little bit differently. Same idea. You know, I'm a big Lewis fan. Here it is. This comes from The Great Divorce. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about heaven working backwards, turning agonies into glories? Easter Sunday is the day we declare that's true. Three days before Jesus came back to life, the Roman cross stood for death. It stood for torture. It stood for fear. And in three days, it became a symbol of love and life. You see, in the resurrection, the resurrection itself began to work backwards. And that thing that stood for torture and horror became the thing that now hangs on our wall. Who does that? Who takes a symbol that has carried corpses over the ancient world and puts it in their building? We do. Because the resurrection worked backwards and turned an agony into life and glory. I am convinced that one day, every person who has suffered with cancer and stood next to Jesus, all of it will be turned into glory and power. i got no idea how that happens. I have no doubt that any person who has died suddenly of a heart attack or his body has been mangled in a car and has lost their life and been tied to Jesus one day, the agony, the twisting of their body will one day be turned into power and glory. I have no idea that's going to work, but I know this, that a symbol that once stood for death was transformed into a symbol of life. I know that hands that had holes turned into scars that communicated love. That's what I know. So this Easter Sunday, what I'm saying is that the resurrection is not just about high pie in the sky where there's no more pain, no more memory of a life of agony. I'm saying Easter Sunday says everything you and I have suffered, whatever you carry on this day, one day in the hands of Jesus will be remade just like a Roman cross was turned into a symbol of love. So if you said, Jason, I love it. But will you just say it in a few words? Yes. Yes, I will. Here's the way I'd summarize all of it. In the hands of the resurrected Jesus, every pain, every scar will be turned into something glorious and powerful. So do not let go of Jesus. Easter Sunday is the day where we declare whatever pain we suffered, whatever loved one is hurting, it will not be forgotten and it will be transformed because one day heaven's going to work backwards and all of it's going to turn into a glory, just like losing your keys turns into something glorious when they're found. I don't know how it works with cancer and heart attacks. I don't know how it works with broken marriages. I don't understand any of that. But I do know that a man died on a Roman cross and he came back to life. And today he lives. And because of that, I know everything else is going to work its way out. So here's the next step for us. This is what I want us to do this week. Notice flowers blooming and grass growing and remember your hope in Jesus.
Now, some of you cut grass. So next time you're cutting that grass, like probably this week, as the blade is shaving off the grass, remember, two months ago, that grass was dead. And today it's growing. When you go outside and you look at flowers blooming, remember, two months ago, it was dead. But today, they're blooming. That's the reality of Easter Sunday. Things are coming back to life. And one day, all of that life will work backwards and every piece of suffering for every student of Jesus will be made remade into a glory. That's our hope. So what's your next step this week? You notice. Notice things. Notice things coming back to life and know that's your life in Jesus. Notice. Notice pretty things. And have hope in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the hope in Jesus. And so we take notice of you bringing the world back to life in nature this week. And we know it is a testimony of the reality of Easter Sunday. And that all things that are agonizing will be remade into glory. And all the scars we will carry will be symbols of love and forgiveness and life and mercy all in your kingdom. We carry them like our Savior carried them. And we are so thankful we have hope. So for every flower and every blade of grass, give us hope. And would you give us strength to never let go of Jesus. And so we pray that through him who lives right now. His name, the Lamb, slain and worthy, Jesus the Christ. And together we say, Amen.